As we come now to the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, you can turn to 2 Samuel in chapter 18. This is our last time here in 2 Samuel. That's 2 Samuel chapter 18. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, the translation is slightly different than mine, but it's essentially the same. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, as we sit now before your word, help us to find both humility and hope. Lord, would you help us not to think too much of ourselves, but to see ourselves in light of your glory, and yet at the same time to be taken up in your glory in Jesus. Would you guide us as we come to your word? By your spirit, open our hearts and minds to believe and to love these things. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is 2 Samuel chapter 18. I'll begin in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 19. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. And then the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. And so he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by a wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king, the king said, If he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman then saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I, I saw a great commotion, but I didn't know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. And so he turned aside and stood still. And behold, 
the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand who, of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is God's word. Now, this is our final sermon from 2 Samuel, at least for a while. There's a sort of epilogue, a sort of afterward that's happened uh, in all these chapters in, in chapter 19. We won't cover that, although it's certainly worth reading if you'd like to read that on your own. But the true story of Absalom, the son of King David, really ends here. And it's not a happy ending. David's response here, these last words of the chapter, are, I think, the saddest words in the Old Testament. You'll remember how we got here. If you were here last week and the weeks before that, all those years that Absalom, the son of King David, had, had worked to take over his father's throne as king, all of that work had finally come to a head uh, as the nation of Israel was split in this civil war and there was eventually a battle that finally came. And from that battle, 20,000 men died. One of those who died was Absalom, the son of David. He was struck through the heart and killed as he hung caught in a tree by his head of glorious hair. David, his father, the king, did not go into that battle. Instead, uh, he stayed in the city, but he told his commanders as they went out to battle, listen, I want you to deal gently, protect my, the young man Absalom. It seems that even all the trouble that Absalom had caused David in these last 10 years, he's still David's son, and he still cares deeply about his child. But as the battle goes on, then David sits and waits probably anxiously to see how this will, will play out. He stands watch, he posts a watchman, and, and, and they're at the city gates to look for battle news. And while they're waiting, um, there's this long account of how the messengers exactly are sent, uh, who went first, and, and why they went first, and all of these details. And, and, and you wonder why then all those details are put in there. It's almost as if the author purposely, purposefully wants to draw out what's happening. I mean, we, the reader, know that David's son is dead. 
But David does not know that yet. And he is sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for news. So as we're now watching him wait, it's, it's putting us on edge too, wondering how David is going to take the news. The author here is not interested in just reporting naked historical facts. The author is trying to help us get the significance of this, to help us to hold on to this, to, to feel what happens here. So as they wait at the gate, the watchman says, I, I think I see someone. Finally, all that way. Aha, there's, there's a runner. He's coming with news. And actually, look, there's, there's a second one. So they're not seeing a mass of their soldiers coming back into the city. That's good news. And even the second runner they recognize as Ahimaaz, one who had been an ally of theirs. And so David then, in seeing these messengers come, would be hopeful. Ah, good news is coming. So the first comes in, the Cushite, this first messenger, he does say, good news, the Lord has delivered you, David, from all of your enemies. And David says, the first thing on his mind, listen, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite says, you know, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know. And David says, step aside. The second messenger comes in, then he says the same thing. Good news, the Lord has delivered you from all your enemies. And David says, first thing on his mind still, but is it well with the young man Absalom? And what this messenger tells him sounds a little roundabout to us, but it's clear to David. The messenger says, David, may all of your enemies be like that young man. And David knows in that moment that his son Absalom is gone. You've noticed, maybe, before in this text, up to this point, he's been referring to Absalom as that young man. There's a bit of distance held there. But now, as David hears the news of the death of Absalom, it all comes crashing down. We see David staggering up to his chambers in tears, and he calls Absalom what he really is, my son. Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. You see, in the way he says it, it's like a record player that's just skipping. He just repeats it over and over. He here is scratched and broken and stuck. My son, my son, Absalom, my son. A scene like this can be difficult to watch. It feels a bit to me like, like watching a really heavy movie like Schindler's List or something similar. You know, you, you almost have to be in a certain emotional state or, or mood to be able to take it all in, to be able to absorb exactly what's happening, to actually listen to David as his cries are echoing off the walls and ringing out in the darkness. And the irony here is especially bitter because Absalom's name 
in Hebrew, Abi Shalom, means Father of Peace, or My Father is Peace. And in this moment, nothing could be further from the truth as he mourns the death of his own child. Now, as awful as all of this is, there is more going on here than just a father mourning the death of his own son. And we can see it, actually, in the words that David says, if you look with me in this last verse, verse 33, he repeats, my son, Absalom, my son, my son. But then he does not say, if only you had not died although I'm sure that's true. He wishes he had not died. He does not say, if only you had not died. Look what he actually says. If only I had died instead of you. Do you see the difference there? If only I had died instead of you. There's a sense then from David that in this situation, someone had to die. And David is just saying, I I." I just wish it were me instead. Now we know in one sense that Absalom, David's son, has brought this war on himself. Absalom made a run for the crown that was not his. He campaigned for support to undercut and undermine the the king. He took over the capital of Jerusalem. He had killed his own brother and was now trying to kill his father. He was not just a fighter in war. Absalom was a maker of this war. So all of these things are a result of his own choices, his own will, his own decision. So it is without question that what happens here, he is responsible for. There is no injustice done to Absalom. That's true. And yet in another sense, all of what happened here is part of God's righteous judgment upon David. You remember when we first started this that David had sinned. He had taken a woman that was not his, taken the life of a man who was not his to take. And the result then, as he's confronted with that sin, he's told by the Lord that the Lord has put away his sin. In other words, David would not suffer eternal punishment for that sin, and yet there would still be serious consequence for serious sin. He's told that the sword will not depart from his house. So in other words, David has planted an acorn that has now grown into a big and ominous oak tree. And so when this messenger arrives with news that his son Absalom is dead, David knows in his guts that he is partly responsible for that. And David says that he wishes he could have died instead. (sighs) Okay. I know this all gets really heavy. (laughs) So let's let's pause here and and take a breath. (sighs) All right. Heavy things. Heavy things are good, but they're heavy. Uh, So let's uh, pause and, and focus on something lighter, I guess. Let's talk doctrine. 
That'll be nice and light and easy, right? Doctrine, we do those sorts of things here. We care about true things. What is happening here is part of a larger theme in the Bible. A doctrine called, how's this for a nice light, light doctrine? Penal substitutionary atonement. It's not as heavy as it sounds, okay? We can figure out what that means, okay? Penal, meaning penalty or punishment for wrong. Substitutionary, we know what that means. Something that's in place of another thing. In other words, taking a penalty instead of another. And atonement, that's maybe the toughest one, is to repair a wrong to satisfy a penalty so that the guilt is spent. In the Bible, atonement is that the debt of sin is paid. That's what atonement is. And we see penal substitutionary atonement all over the Old Testament. It's necessary because the people of God are sinners. And because the people of God sin big. We have offended God, and the wage then of sin is death. So that debt of sin can only be paid with blood. That's what the law talks about in Leviticus chapter 17. Where is it? Verse 11, the Lord says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I, the Lord, have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, the Lord says here that he will accept a penal substitution of blood to make atonement and satisfy the penalty for the people. So there was an elaborate system of blood sacrifices. Some of them were regular, even daily. One of the most striking sacrifices was one that happened just once a year. On the 10th day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the nation would gather and they'd bring two goats that together were a sin offering. One of those goats, uh, they would sacrifice in the typical way. They would kill the goat and sprinkle the blood on the altar and the mercy seat. The other goat, they would do something else with. This is Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, I'll begin in verse 21. And Aaron, the priest, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Uh, verse 30, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. You see what's happening here. The priest, on behalf of all the people, is physically putting his hands on the head of a goat, 
which is symbolically transferring the sin to that goat. That the goat would bear all of their sin, and then they send the goat away to die in the wilderness. That's a penal, substitutionary atonement to cleanse the people from sin. That happens broadly, and then it even happens in particular sins. So particular sins bear their own individual guilt, and so there's a a process of penal substitutionary atonement for that. So for example, uh, one of my favorite uh, examples of this is if someone murders another person and they never figure out who did it, there is still guilt for that unsolved murder. And so some sort of atonement needed to happen Uh, And so they would um, measure out the nearest city, if it happened in a field, they'd go to the nearest city, and they would take a heifer from that city and, and break its neck. And then this is what happens, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21, beginning in verse 6, And all the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Therefore, accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. Do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. Over and over and over, we see these substitutes, even in the famous uh, leaving of Egypt, you know, let my people go, and, and in Passover, right before the night before uh, Egypt, uh, the Israelites all leave, the firstborn's lives were to be taken, but the Israelites were to kill a lamb and put the lamb's blood over the doorpost. That would be a substitute then as the firstborn so that they would be safe under that blood. We see these substitutes one after another in the Old Testament that one is going to die instead of another. Now, for the people of God, this brings, well, several things. One is hope, but it also brings a problem The hope is that the people are not destroyed. That because of their sin, they are not cast out of the good presence of God. The problem is that all of these blood sacrifices aren't enough. They're insufficient for complete and lasting atonement. Because a substitute, in order to be a valid substitute, must be of greater worth than what the payment requires. You can't have something of less worth or else it doesn't cover the payment. So an animal sacrifice, even a strong animal, even a spotless animal, animal is not enough to cover the sin of just one human. And even a human bears his own guilt. He's not able to pay off the guilt of his own sin, much less someone else. 
So even if David could put himself in his son Absalom's place, that situation would still not be made clean, would not be renewed, would not be made whole. There would still be so much brokenness, a scratched record that's still stuck, skipping and playing the same four notes over and over and over again. So that brings a question then for us. How then can we be truly atoned for the brokenness of the record of sin? How can that sin be truly atoned for? I hope that the answer comes as no surprise to you. Jesus is going to be involved somehow. We know that the trails of blood in the scripture are always leading us to the heart of God in Jesus. Always. If true atonement is ever able to occur, if the wrong is to be fully repaired, if the penalty is to be fully sacrificed, satisfied, if we are to be fully restored to God, the blood that is given must be of greater worth than even we can give. Which means God himself must be the substitute if we are to be saved. Um, an author who's now dead. You know me well by now. I often don't quote living people for whatever reason. Uh, John Stott, who wrote The Cross of Christ, uh, thicker than most books I refer to, uh, but this one's worth, uh, worth the read. He writes about it this way. He says, The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and of salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. It is striking to us, if we really pause to think about it, that God himself would accept your penalty. We know that Jesus willingly offered himself in love as a sacrifice for sin, and the worth of Jesus is so immensely great that he is able to die once for all time to cover every single sin 
for every single person who comes to him by faith. Jesus is the only penal substitutionary atonement which can fully atone. That's the reason why when, G when he died on the cross, he said, it's finished. Do you believe that? If you are a Christian who comes to Jesus by faith and rests in his salvation, do you believe then that his sacrifice is a full penalty substitute for you? We want to deepen our trust in that. There's immense rest in there. And I, I know I am so glad for that. I find a lot of peace in knowing that Jesus has covered all my sin, past, present, and future. I hope that's true of you too. But if I'm honest, I know at times I also struggle with this. The fact that Jesus has given himself as a substitute for me. Because if Jesus is my substitute, a part of me feels like I still owe some sort of debt to him. And I want to pay it off like I would a car loan. So if you ever, if we ever go out to lunch together and you say, no, I have the check, and you know, the polite thing is to say, oh, no, 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 I have, you know, whatever else, but someone picks up the check for lunch, my response is often, oh, I'll, I'll pay you back, or I'll get it next time, or, or I'll make you a pie. I mean, it's going to be a horrible pie because I'm not a great baker, but yeah, I want to do something in response. And, and maybe that reveals my own pride more than anything. But it's funny how uncomfortable it is to receive a gift a gift that's not necessarily returned. What Jesus has given us then is far greater than lunch. Jesus has cleansed our souls, renewed our lives, and given us eternal happiness with God. There is no way we could ever repay that because no matter how much we may love God, he will always out-love us. So all we can do is just say thank you. Give him praise and thanks as we follow Jesus. That's our response. I'm a little sad to be ending our time with Absalom. As, as dark and, and heartbreaking as many of these events of his true story often were, I'm still sad. Uh, it, it feels maybe you know what this is like. If you've ever finished the last sentence of a really good novel and you close the book for the last time, but then you find out that the novel's actually part of a series. There's more to the story, and, and you go to the library to get the sequel and figure out what happens next. The true story of Absalom is like that, just like the true story of your lives or mine are like that. We are part of a bigger story of what God is doing. 
And even though we, man, have substituted ourselves for God, God in Jesus has stepped in and substituted himself for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know in the darkness of all that's happened in these many years of David's life and Absalom's life, we know that still your love is greater than all sin. Would you help us to surrender then to your mercies, to come to you in belief with thanks and praise. These things we give you now. Thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.